We are talking about the promises of God, the promises of God, and just in very short, brief review, where we can get a jump start on this and get a context. Last time we covered this, we were talking about the promises, and we started defining some things. One of the things we wanted to define is what is a promise. In review, Strong's lexicon says to announce upon to engage to do something, to engage to do something. So that is a promise. Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is a classic English dictionary, it says this, and I think it's just an excellent definition of a promise. It says, in a general sense, a declaration, written or verbal, made by one person to another, which binds the person who makes it, either in honor conscience or law to do or forbear a certain act specified. A declaration which gives to the person to whom it is made a right to expect or to claim the performance or forbearance of the act. That's a mouthful, but that is very, very good. Now, so when we talk about that is what a promise is, but when we talk about the promises of God, we are taking that definition, okay, and we are saying, okay, Lord, When I think of promises, I'm going to look to you and the promises you make. I am expecting you to fulfill them. Now, it is very important, folks, when we talk about the promises of God, that you make sure that what you're expecting from God is indeed a promise from God. One that is found in context, okay? Don't take something out of the Levitical law and think, well, okay, I'm going to apply that to my family, You know, if you're going to apply one part of the Levitical law, you need to apply all of the Levitical law. You might say, well, can't we learn from the things from the Levitical law? Absolutely. That's why, you know, that's why we still have that. That's why the word of God has been preserved. We can learn things from it. But those things are principles. God is wanting us to learn from the principles. Leviticus teaches us the holiness of God. Leviticus teaches us the separated godly walk of the believer. That's the general thrust of what that is for us today. But we are not under the Mosaic law, okay? And so I'll give you an example of how people get off. And they'll say, well, you know what? Okay, if I do this, this, and this, God says I won't get sick. I won't get any of the diseases, okay? Well, that's just not true. People got sick back then. I guarantee you every one of them died from something, But these are things given to them, and it had to do with their culture, and it had to do with their uniqueness as a people that God wanted them to do. And yes, God did bless their obedience to that. But that was given to the nation of Israel. You take that now, and you come over to the New Testament, and Paul says you can eat anything you want. Just be sure you pray and thank God for it. That's what it says. Years ago, we had a a couple. He was a very, very strong personality type A entrepreneur. And he started getting into uh, Old Testament law and all that. And his, his wife came up to me and she, you know, he, he was wanting her to doing everything according to Old Testament law. She says, would you please talk to my husband? Pastor, will you please talk to my husband? Really comes, okay, if you're going to do it, then okay, are, are we under law or aren't we? If we're under law, we need to have live sacrifices in church. Okay. Do you see where this is going? So I said all that to say this. If you're going to claim a promise from God, be sure you're claiming it in the context that it was meant to be claimed. All right? That is important. And the reason I'm saying that, the main reason is this. 
you don't want to be disappointed and you don't want to falsely accuse God of not being true to his word if you're thinking he said this and in fact that's not what he was saying. That wasn't for you. So keep that in mind. So this whole idea of a promise and what a promise is, we're talking about the promises of God. So God being the source of the promises that we're looking at. And that is very important. Biblically speaking, a promise of God, a promise is that the Lord will be true to his word. That is what a promise is in our context, that the Lord will be true to his word, what he has said. This is in a real sense self-defining because he can't lie. So he is going to be true to what he said. Now, it's important that we understand what he said. But this is foundational to all the rest. Think about it. If the Lord can lie and break a promise, then there are no certainties in life. There's none. And everything in life has the potential then of falling apart. Everything. Because if he's not trustworthy, who is? You talk about living in fear. Now, let me say this. Uh, We need to be responsible as people, but listen, I hope none of you live in fear. I don't live in fear. God doesn't want us to live in fear. We live by faith, and there's a big difference between the two. Being responsible, yes, we need to be responsible, but we should not be living in fear. That is not the posture of the believer, okay? But if God is not true to his word, everything has the potential, everything in life has the potential of falling apart. If he cannot lie and he can't, then what he says is a real promise. And folks, you've got to look at your Bible, and you have to look at the Bible and say, this is indeed a book of promises. Now, I've got nothing against using an iPad. I use an iPad. You know that. My wife and I have devotions on iPads every morning and all of that. But you know what? I can't look at my iPad and say, this is the word of God, (laughs) because there's a lot of other things that this thing does, okay? This does one thing. Amen? This does one thing. It is a a bound copy of the promises of God between this cover here, and it's a marvelous thing. The promises of God are an extension of his attributes. In Numbers, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. He says, hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? The answer to that is he will be true to his word. God is always true to his word. Now that can be haunting for the believer who's in rebellion, or it can be a tremendous blessing for the one who's wanting to live for Christ and yet is going through difficulties in life. God will be true to his word. Titus uh, 1-2, it says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promise before the world began. People say, well, you say you believe the Bible. Yeah. Do you believe in six-day creation? Yes. Come on. Are, are, Are you serious? Yes. How can you believe in that? The most profound reason in all the world, God can't lie. He said it, that settles it. And I just happen to believe it. It isn't God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No. God said it, that settles it. And hopefully we believe it. Well, I believe it. You mean literally six, six 24-hour days? Yep. Why is that? That's what the Bible teaches. It's what it teaches, right? Well, those days there in Genesis, how do you know those are real days? Where every place else in the Bible, they're days. 
It's the same word. Not only that, in Exodus chapter 20, if you read Exodus 20, particularly as you go down from verse 1, you get to verse 11, and it makes it is unquestionably talking about 24-hour days. And it says he made the world in six days. So we believe it. We take God at his word. You might say, well, most of the world doesn't believe that. They're not right. They're wrong. Why? God said it. God can't lie. Therefore, you can believe it to be true. Folks, it's a matter of the world catching up with what God says. He's way ahead. He's the one who made it. He, ought to, he was there when it happened. So where do we find the promises? Well, number two, we find the promises of God in his word. By the way, number one is what is a promise. Number two, we find the promises of God in his word. I'm glad they are there because they are written down and we can go back and see them time and time again. And you can do this in your iPad too. You can highlight a verse and you know where it is or you can bookmark it and that can become a favorite verse. You can memorize it. And you know what, folks? You go back time and time again. It'll always be the same. By the way, That's why it is important from a human perspective, it is important that you have one main Bible. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the material part of it. I'm talking about translation. Because if you're going to commit Scripture to memory, you're going to wreak havoc with your brain trying to memorize things in different translations. You're going to have a hard time with that. What about from the King James and the New King James? It happened to me, okay? Difficult. Difficult. I came up on the King James for a few years. Back in the 80s, we used the New King James in church. And I've got nothing really serious against the New King James. But let me say this. What it did was it started dismantling my memory verses. Because they were different just enough to where it was like, I went to say and it was like, now what word is that? Is that this one or that one and all that? Hey, does it matter? Well, it matters. It matters. Now, here we are in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, okay, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Through the word of God, through the promises of Scripture, we come into the Christian life and the realities and the understanding of the Christian life and the understanding of the promises of God. And we can understand the ways of God and we can understand God himself through the pages of scripture. But you notice what they're called? They're called exceeding great and precious promises. Now, we left off last time talking about that's God's word. There are conditional promises in the word of God and there are unconditional promises. I'm not going to go there. We're done with that part. What I wanted to do tonight, though, is move on. And I think, I think you're really going to be encouraged by what we look at tonight. We're talking about the promises of God. Tonight, we're going to talk about the track record of God. How has God done with his promises? I'm not putting them on trial. I'm just saying, and by the way, he doesn't mind us testing him. He invites us to test him. Did you know that? The Bible actually says that. He says, try me whether these things be so over human history. I'm always encouraged to hear the testimonies of people who have believed God and live and give testimony to God's faithfulness. And so what about those who have lived the life and have tested God out, so to speak? In other words, they started out just like we did. They lived life. They came over challenges, some 
incredible challenges of life, and they lived to tell about it at the end of their life. They gave testimony at the end of their life. We're going to visit a few of those tonight. I want you to go with me over to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua, chapter 1, which takes us to our third issue tonight. What about those who have lived the life and tested God out, so to speak? Now, this is really important. Let me say tonight, especially if you're a young person, you've got all kinds of things coming at you. The technology stuff, the stuff of this world, the, the perversion, the corruption, the deception, the wickedness, the sensuality, and all the junk that comes with it. You've got all those things vying for your time, your attention, your affection. The world gives you every reason not to live for Christ. All of them bad, but they'll give you every reason. And if you want some more, they'll give you more. Why, if you live for Christ, they're going to tell you, you're wasting your life, you're a nut, you're an oddball, you're on the outside, people are going to look at you, they're going to think you're a weirdo, and all these kind of things. You sure you want to live that separated life to where you're always talking about Jesus? Well, what about those who did? Well, let's look at one. Joshua is the first one we're going to look at tonight. Joshua was the successor to Moses. We know that. Joshua was there when they left Egypt and they went through the wilderness. Read the first five books of the Bible. When Moses comes on the scene and then there's the Egypt and all that, Joshua is a part of all of that. He was one of the two faithful spies who spied out the land. When the children of Israel did go into the land, he was their leader. So he'd been through the wilderness experience. He's seen it all. He's seen all the rebellion. He saw miracles from God. He saw God discipline the children of Israel. He saw the blessings of God. He he experienced what it was to live on manna. He experienced, by the way, what it was to wear clothes that never wore out. Guys would love that. What are you wearing? Same thing as yesterday and last month and last year. Through many battles, and I want you to, folks, if you haven't read through Joshua recently, through many battles, and these are serious battles, I'm talking about people killing each other and hacking each other to pieces kind of battle. Through many battles, very difficult situations and testings, he believed God would do what God told him he would do. And so from Joshua chapter 1 to the end of the book of Joshua, you basically have, if Usher's timeline is right, you basically have a period of about 26 years from where they're entering the promised land to at the end of the book of Joshua. Now look at it. Here it is. He's just taking over right now for Moses. Can you imagine taking over for Moses? Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister or servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, even to the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, towards the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man, remember, God is speaking 
to Joshua. They haven't gone in yet. He says, there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. Now, I love this next phrase. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. This is the God of promise, the God who can't lie, who's telling him this. Verse 6, be strong and of a good courage. Well, that would make total sense if God is not going to fail him or forsake him. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Again, you notice how several times, what is it, three times now he says, the land, I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the land. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Joshua, I'm promising you something. If you will follow my word, believe what I say, do what I say, you will prosper. You're going to be blessed and I will prosper you. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Oh, but what about those nasty, evil, mean Canaanites and Hittites and parasites and termites and all the other ites? The Lord says, don't be afraid. I got this. I promise you, I'm God, and I promise you, I will be there. I've given you the land. All you got to do is follow me, do what I say, and you'll have it. Now, again, folks, we're not talking about, trust me, I don't mean to make this sound small, but okay, you're going on a trip, pray before you go on a trip. And, you know, we sometimes will think of that, and we're kind of, you know, as I get older, I don't like... I don't like going on trips, but that's nothing. You're talking about here going into land where people live and you're going in there and you're going to uproot them and you're going to annihilate them as people because they're so wicked, you can't coexist with them. And they're not going to just sit there and say, oh, the Israelites are here. Sure, we'll move out. Give us a week. This is serious. This is literally life-threatening stuff. Are we willing to take a challenge like that? Verse 9, have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. He keeps telling him this. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. No matter where you go, I am with you all the way. You'll have it. Follow my word. Don't turn to the right or to the left. You will prosper. You will have good success. Okay? Now, we're going to fly into the future. We're going to go to chapter 21. Go now to chapter 21. All those battles that take place in the book of Joshua, all the battles, Jericho and all the other ones. Joshua 21, verse 43. Here is Joshua talking about how it's been these last 26 years. He was a believer, of course, before he went into the promised land. He was a man. He was a mature man and all that. But here he is. He's gone through all the battles. He's gotten most of the land, and all of that. And here he is in 2143. Joshua, I got a question for you. Uh, This is uh, Tom Kakuza, News at Night. 
I want to interview you. You know, way back when you started this journey, what did God say to you? Well, God said that I can go in. I don't have to be afraid that there's going to be battles. You know, there's going to be fights and stuff, but he's got my back. He's going to be true. The land is going to be ours. He'll be faithful. That's what he told me. He'll be faithful and that I shouldn't fear, but I will prosper. I'll have good success. Okay. How did it go for you? Well, verse 43, and the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. Do you see it, folks? 26 years later, God has been true to his word. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. He said it. He promised it. He swore by his own name that he would be true to it. And here he is true to his word. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. That sounds exactly like chapter one. He told them that would be the case. The enemy would not be able to stand against you. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. 45. I love this. Boy, you ought to mark this one highlighted or do something to it. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. Look at chapter 23, verse 14. 23, 14. Here's Joshua speaking. He says this. He says, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed. Of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you, all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Now, does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise us. Why? God can't lie. God made a promise to him. And here it is at the end of all this, and God has been completely faithful, not mostly faithful, completely faithful, not one thing failed that God promised. Verse 15, therefore it shall come to pass that all good things, that is all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he hath destroyed you from off this good land, which the Lord your God hath given you. And of course, if they in fact would disobey him, and we know that's exactly what they did, they disobeyed the Lord. And things went sour for them as time went on. But here's the point, folks. Joshua could not state verse 14 if God was not true to his word. This is his testimony to the faithfulness of God. And yet, you know what? We just shudder and quake over little stuff. These things were life-threatening situations, but God made a promise. And he said, I'll be true to it. Let's look at another one. Let's move on to David. David, the shepherd boy who became the great king of Israel. Turn with me to Psalm 37. I won't spend as much time on these next ones. Psalm 37. What about you, David? David, can you trust the Lord? Is the God of the Bible trustworthy, David? When he tells us something, is he going to be true to what he said? If he tells us this is the way it is, is that the way it really is going to be? David, how did it go for you? Well... Psalm 37:25 I've been young and now I'm old yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread Folks God is a perfect track record perfect track record and if he didn't fail with them he's not going to fail with you and me 
Let's move on. Solomon. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Starting to see a pattern here? Solomon, the man whom God blessed with wisdom. You might say, well, he made a mess of things. Yeah, you know why? Because he started not believing what God said. It isn't that God wasn't true to his word. It's that Solomon wasn't true to the God of the word. There's a difference. But he said in 1 Kings 8.56, he says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. Here he is down the road. Remember, he's after David. And here he is. And he's saying, listen, God has been true to every word he gave since Moses. Of course, Moses referring to, of course, the first five books of the Bible. God has been true. God is faithful. Do we believe that? We need to. You know, honestly, if we really believe this, the battling with ourselves should be over. As far as are we going to follow the world? Are we going to give in to the temptations of the world? Are we going to follow the world system? Are we going to live a carnal life? Are we going to chase after all the junk that's in this wretched world that's getting more wretched all the time? Why would we when God has made promises that he is always true to and they're promises of a blessed life? Why would we want the junk of the world? Yeah, you know what you see today in most cases? What you see is you see Christians who don't want to be too bad. At the same time, they don't want to be too spiritual. They kind of want to have the cake of the world and then the cake of God at the same time and all that. There's a word for that. It's found in Revelation 3. It's called lukewarm. Lukewarm. And you know what that does? That makes Jesus want to throw up. That's what he said. He says, I'll spew you. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Doesn't mean you're not saved. Remember, Jesus in Revelation 3 is talking to believers there. Let's go to another one. Let's move over to the New Testament. Let's look at Paul. Paul, the great champion for Christ and the church. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You read through the book of Acts. You read through his epistles, his letters that he wrote, folks. Listen, Paul did not have an easy life we'll get a map and we'll look at a map and we'll say, oh, Paul's missionary journeys. And we'll look at it and they'll say, okay, okay. He went from here and then he went from over here and all that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's real impressive. We don't have a clue. You're talking mountains. He's going through mountains. He's dealing with bandits. He's dealing with people who are hunting him like hunting dogs after the animal, the coons, whatever. Okay. His life was nonstop in that regard. He was beaten. He was stoned. They stoned him to the point to where they thought he was dead. And in my view, personally, I believe he did die at that point, but God resurrected him. I think his death experience is is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's just what I believe. Uh, Some people disagree with that. That's okay. But here's the point. He had a hard life as a Christian. But you know what? What's he say in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Look at this. Well, we'll go to the end verses here and then we'll back up. 2 Timothy 4 verse 16 says, At my first answer, that was his first trial in the book of Acts, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not 
be laid to their charge. Now you notice that all men forsook him. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. Why? Because God said he would. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Why did God strengthen him? Because he said he would. That by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, we don't know for sure what the lion is. It could have been a literal lion in an arena. It could be referring to Satan. It could be referring to Caesar. I mean, it could be referring to a lot of things. I don't think it's Caesar, but these other ones... We don't know. And you know what? It really doesn't matter. But what do we see in verse 16 and 17? We see the faithfulness of the Lord to his promises. God was faithful to his word. And at times where it was very discouraging, yes, folks, Paul the apostle, he, he had times of discouragement. He had times of weakness. He had times of fear in his life as a believer. They were difficult times, but God was still true to his word and brought them through the difficult times. Never forsook them, never left them. As a matter of fact, we find him in the book of Acts and he was very discouraged and Jesus himself appears to him. He says, I'm with you. I'm paraphrasing this. I'm going to bring you through this. Things aren't over yet. Now, verse 16, verse 17 Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. That's past tense. He's talking about a time in the past. And strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, that the Gentiles might hear. Verse 18. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will deliver me. And when the time is right, he's going to take me heaven. He's going to deliver me through this time. What time am I referring to? His death. He knew he was going to die soon. Back it up and look at verse 5. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept my faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I'm on the tarmac. I'm about to take off. You know what? All those years that he served Christ, 30-something years he served Christ, roughly. All those years he was faithful to God. All the hardship he went through. All the difficulties he went through. But wait a minute. Okay, hardship, difficulties, trials, yep. What about all the souls he won to Christ? What about all the churches he started? What about all the blessings? See, because the blessings aren't out there so much. The blessings are in here. What about all the blessings he experienced along the way? What about all the people he was able to disciple and all the good things that the Apostle Paul saw? Do we see anything here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to where he's complaining about, you know what? What a wasted life I lived since I got saved. No, not one word that it was a waste. It was all profitable. It was all worth it. The Lord shall deliver me verse 18, from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. He's got me in his hand, is what he's saying. He's got me in his hand. I love this. Unto his what? Heavenly kingdom. He was getting ready to go there. That's amazing. It really is. 
Now let's wind this down. Here you go tonight. And this is the point. If the Lord is trustworthy, then we can rest in him and rejoice in all things. Let that sink in. If the Lord is trustworthy, if he's true to his word, remember he is because he can't lie. If the Lord is trustworthy, then we can rest in him and rejoice in all things. How much can we rest in him and rejoice in all things? We can completely rest in him and rejoice in all things because he's completely trustworthy. His promises are more important than anything we have in our lives. If he was that way with others, he will be that way with me and with you. He will be just as faithful to us as he was to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to Solomon, to Paul, to Peter, you name it. Any saint, women of the Bible, Mary, I mean, any of the saints, Esther, Daniel, the list goes on and on, right? God was faithful. God was faithful. God was faithful. Why? That's who he is. That's an attribute of God, faithfulness. He's trustworthy. So folks, Romans 2.11 says, there's no respect of persons with God. John chapter 6. Go with me to John 6. That's where we'll close tonight. We go through difficulties. God says this to us. Hey, I'm your dad. I'm almighty God. I got this. You don't have to worry. You can rejoice. You're in my hand. I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to forsake you. And this is a mind blower. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Could I ask for anything more than that? All that Moses went through, God was there. And all that I may go through, the Lord is there. John 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That's amazing. Let me just say clearly, folks, God loves us. He sent his son to be a sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay for our sins so that we don't have to pay for our sins. God loves us that much. God in the flesh came, died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose from the grave three days later. And he says, all I'm asking you to do is believe in me that I did that for you. Put your faith in me that I did that for you. See, salvation is all of Christ. It's all of God. It's not us. All he's asking us to do is believe he did it for us. He did the work. Believe he did it for us. The minute you start adding things like, well, you got to reform your life or promise him you're going to reform your life or promise to be good or stop this or start that and all that, you're taking, you're taking the responsibility of your salvation upon yourself. You can't save yourself. For by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. There is no other way to heaven but Jesus. That's why he came, because there was no other way. And he's asking us to trust in Christ, and God will give us eternal life. If you haven't trusted in him, trust in him tonight. You might say, how can I know I'm saved? Because God can't lie. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. You may know that you have eternal life. I know I'm saved. Why? God can't lie. I believe what he says. 
Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.